You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. open up your Bibles if you don't already or turn on your app, which I increasingly do as well. We're in Exodus 17. Uh, This summer, as you, most of you know, Midtown's been going through a teaching series on prayer, very creatively and shockingly entitled A Summer of Prayer. Um, What Norm, you know, has in, he he has a lot of gospel clarity, but maybe not so much creativity in sermon titles, but it's all right. You can't fire me. I can say whatever I want to this morning, so... You probably will never see me again, and I'm pretty sure after this sermon that's the case. But um, I would commend the last few sermons, uh, including last week, which wasn't technically part of the series, but just a good message nonetheless to your podcast feed. The hope is in this series, my understanding is that it's not to just inform us on what, what prayer is and what it isn't, some of the practical nature and how to do it, or even, I mean, always you can encourage more prayer, but it's, that's not really the, the heart of it. It's more of, a, of, a, of an invitation to draw near to God to draw near to God this summer. Take these, this time where hopefully all of us have a little bit of a rest in our rhythm, but take that time to draw near and his promise is that he will draw near to you. And let's have that season where we are more in tune with our Father and his will and his design and his plans for our lives and those that we love and care for. It's an encouragement to, and a plea to communicate and listen to God, to cry out, to have a season, maybe a summer of more confession or repentance or rejoicing Maybe he needs spiritual discernment, which is what we've been seeking in this last season. And as we'll focus on today, uh, maybe that prayer involves some spiritual warfare, some spiritual battle uh, through prayer. So we're going to look at a little, a little sort, sort of obscure part of Moses' life and ministry, and then we'll, we'll look at the posture of prayer and uh, the purpose of this particular type of prayer, and then we'll circle back to our, our cultural moment and consider, okay, what do we, how, do, how does this inform us? How, how do we live differently? How do we pray differently in, in light of this text? Sound Okay. We with, are, we, are, we, are you with me? Can we do this? Okay, all right. I don't get to do this more than once a year, so I've, I've lost my feel for this, but I need your support. Um, we pick up the story in Mount Sinai, Saudi Arabia, modern-day Saudi Arabia, where God's chosen people, known as the Israelites, under the leadership of Moses, some of you have heard of him, have just escaped from about 400 years of Egyptian slavery. They're about to receive the Ten Commandments or the law, and just before they do, they're forced to fight off an unprovoked attack. Uh, from a neighboring tribe. And so my prayer is that as we look at this little story and how Moses responds, how God responds, we're going to see not only a a real warfare, a battle, but a spiritual echo of that and a uh, a really remind us of our desperate need for for prayer, for dependence upon Jesus to be our victor. That we'd remember God's promises and boldly this morning approach the throne of grace. That we would become, that this house would become a house of prayer this morning even. The big idea is simply in moments of deep spiritual battle, one of the greatest resources we have as God's people is prayer. And that some battles require not just individual prayer, but prayer from community, from friends, from family, from the people of God. We're going to look at some new characters in an ancient battle, new power in an ancient posture, and lastly, a new altar and an ancient promise. Let me pray for us for this time, for myself, and for our hearts to receive what God has for us. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for being our Father, our Abba. We thank you, Holy Spirit, and we welcome you for your presence this morning, for the way that you align our hearts and our minds towards you and your kingdom. 
acknowledge Jesus that um, I'm not as prepared as I should be, I am not as competent as I should be, that I need this sermon more than anybody in this room. I pray that you would work uh, through me, despite me, to reach and encourage and strengthen. So Holy Spirit, do what only you can do to make Jesus glorious and beautiful. I pray for those that are, are really wrestling this morning that you would meet them in their place of need. I pray for those under deep spiritual attack that you would be their, their victor, their shield, their strength, that they would drink deeply of your springs of living water. And I pray for every church gathered in this city under your banner, under your authority, that they would thrive and flourish and you'd break, you just break forth a new revival, a true awakening of your spirit, of your kingdom in this place that desperately needs it. We love the city, Lord, but not as much as you do. So do your work this morning for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, jump right into the story. Israelites have just experienced, like I said, deliverance. They've been in slavery, not a good season. They've crossed the Red Sea. Uh, they're in the desert, and God has just demonstrated his authority, once again, over, over all of life by miraculously providing water from a rock. So that's the story that just proceeds where we are. Uh, and begins that they're kind of at a rest stop in this in this town called Rephidim, where we meet where we meet some new characters and this ancient battle. I'll start reading in verse eight, chapter seventeen of Exodus. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, "Select some men for us to go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand." All right, so some new characters. If you're just kind of reading chronologically through the story, uh, Joshua, Yeshua. Uh, not only is he a type of Jesus in the Old Testament, he's it's got the same name as Jesus. That's, that's Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. Uh, he's famous for many things for leading God's people, but this is the first time we meet him. He is a warrior. Uh, he's one of the few people, one of the two people that actually went through slavery, that actually went through the wilderness and re- went, entered the promised land because of his faith. He does know how to use a sword, and we'll find that out, um, but he knows where the greater power comes from. He's, a, he's a, one, of the, one of the heroes in the Old Testament. The second character is somebody who we've also not met before if you're reading through the scriptures, uh, but, but play a pretty prominent role through the Old Testament as part of the, the enemy tribes, right? Amalek and his descendants, the Amalekites. Uh, Amalek is the grandson of Esau, right? Who was always at war with his twin brother, Jacob, right? So Isaac and Rebekah have twin boys who are at enmity, at war with one another. And these are the descendants of both of them. So Amalek's, uh, Esau's descendants, Amalek, that's the Amalekites. Jacob's descendants are the Israelites. So this is a big family squabble, but a serious squabble where there's death, where they hate one another. This isn't just like a, you know, we disagree over a family meal with your cousins. These people hate each other. And this is a few generations down. The Amalekites are a semi-nomadic people who live just south of Canaan. They're in the northern, northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. We don't know that much about them, but this much we can deduce. The politically correct way to say this is they're intellectually challenged. These are not smart people. Think about the situation that they find themselves in, right? They're minding their own business. Let's call it a Malicksburg. They're in their, their village and they hear of this new tribe, a lot of people coming through town in the desert. Scarce resources, scarce water. So it's pretty understandable. They're threatened. They're threatened. That, that's fine. But the Israelites have a reputation, right? Think of where they've just come from and how fast the word would spread about what just happened. Without lifting a sword, these people have just defeated the world's great superpower. Just defeated the great superpower of Egypt. Their war chariots and war horses are drowning in the Red Sea. That's a story that is being well known. This is not far from that. This is just just after that. 
All right. And so somehow these Amalekites get together in their war tent and they're probably drinking too much. And they're like, I think we can take them. Let's just take these guys right out. Nobody thought to mention, uh, dudes, the last guys to oppose this people, they lost their health. They lost most of their livestock. They lost most of their money. All of them lost a child. Do we really need this battle? Do we really need this fight? And so they just keep drinking and one guy starts thumping his chest and pounded, yes, you shall not pass. We're going to stop him. And he just goes all crazy, you know, North Korea military strategy. Bad, not smart. That's the Amalekites and that's what they're thinking. And secondly, they're not only... Um, sin makes you stupid. So they're not only not that bright, but they're also cowards. Look how they fight. Deuteronomy 25 should be on the screen, but I sent the notes in late. Look at that. This church is so organized. Man, I wish reality could have been that organized. <laughs> Unbelievable. Whoever was in leadership there, I was just... So Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. That's, that's one of those underlined. They did not fear God. This is important. So we don't know why they attacked the Israelites. We can deduce, we can guess, but we do know how they did it. Instead of facing the army head on, sword against sword, man against man, they went after the stragglers, the children, the weak, the elderly, the sick, the infirm. That's how the Amalekites fight. It's cowardly. More importantly, um, they did not fear God. They did not fear God. That's a big deal. Not fearing God is to put yourself against him. Who are you, supposed maker of the universe, to tell me what to do, how to believe, how to behave, that I have to submit to you? Who are you? I do not fear you. This is the Amalekites. They do not fear God. And this points us beyond this story. So this is a little anecdotal story, but this should point us beyond. The biblical authors don't want us to get stuck in just this. It's like beyond. There's a, there's a story underneath the story. It's not just a historical skirmish. It's an ancient battle. The battle is not simply Amalekites versus Israelites. It's a reputation of the ultimate cosmic battle that you and I continue on to this day. Between the forces of heaven, represented by truth and beauty. Freedom flourishing by the forces of evil, represented by chaos and deception, by fear and by death. Remember, the Israelites have been slaves for hundreds of years, but now they're free. Exodus 14, just before this passage, on the banks of the Red Sea, this is what Moses declares. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And note this, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. They've been told to stand firm, wait on the Lord. The Lord's your victor. The Lord's your warrior. God's already won their salvation. He's delivering them from freedom. He's promised to fight for them, but it doesn't mean that they're on the sidelines. God's their fighter, but he says, you're with me. I want you fighting. Engage in the battle. God's people fear God and nothing else. Unlike the Amalekites. Right? It's, the scriptures say the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Israelites fear the Lord. They're wise. The Amalekites do not fear God. They are unwise. So there's a cosmic battle that's happening here between God's kingdom and the snake, the serpent. Midtown, God's people do have an enemy. It's important that we acknowledge that, but it's not other people. It's not people that believe differently. It's not people that behave differently. The scriptures describe demonic powers and principalities as our true enemy. And those satanic powers have as their mission 
to cause the family of God to live like they're slaves. That we're not forgiven. To live like we're not set apart. To live like we don't have what it takes to be holy. The Holy Spirit. Their mission is to cast doubt on God's promises. Did God really say? Can you really trust him? Their mission is to render the church powerless, God's people powerless, as if God is not real, present, and victorious. And this is the condition of of the church today. Now for you and I, for many of us, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. We practice the way of Jesus. We've been saved by God's grace through faith. We've been promised salvation eternally, reconciliation. We've been promised flourishing. Jesus is our victor. We've been equipped and sent by his spirit to bring light to the dark places, to healing to the hopeless, in the language of the Old Testament, to bring a little heaven on earth, to reflect a little of God's light into the dark places of this world. Yet when we look around, it's tempting to live like this isn't true. When we look at the world, when you look at your city, when you look at your neighbors, when you look at your, your colleagues, when you look at the worldview that seems to be prevailing, it's, it's easy and tempting to live like this isn't true, to be overwhelmed by the depravity and the trajectory and the momentum of our prevailing cultural values. The point is simply the battle between those who fear God and between those who do not continues to this day. It's not limited to the Amalekites and the Israelites. It's not limited to the um, God's people and the alphabet mafia. It's not limited to... It is a spiritual battle ultimately and it, is, and it takes place in the spiritual realm, not against flesh and blood. So what can we do? Well, first of all, know your enemy. Know your true enemy. Ephesians 6 describes this uh, very well. I'll just read one verse, chapter, verse uh, 12 in chapter 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, this is Paul writing, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's our enemy. That's the enemy that we're seeing in this story as well, but that's our true enemy and our current enemy. Secondly, expect opposition. Our life as Christians is not promised to be um, obstacle-free, war-free. It's the opposite. We're supposed to expect opposition. Every Christian from from, from 2,000 years ago till now has has faced extreme opposition, many far worse than you and I experience. Our lives on earth will be filled with ambushes, temptations, and spiritual attack. The enemy doesn't fight fair, just like the Amalekites. He doesn't fight fair. He takes a, he t- he'll attack your weakest spot, your weakest moment, your weakest time when you're exhausted, when you're stressed, when things aren't going well. That's when he's going to attack you with some other temptation that you've been fighting. He doesn't fight fair. There's no exceptions. The question is really, will we stand firm or will we stand down? Will we stand firm or will we stand down? Thirdly, know yourself. Know your enemy. Expect opposition, but know yourself. We all want to put ourselves in the place of the Israelites where God's chosen people. But if you're honest, you and I act more frequently like the Amalekites. Or on occasion, you act like the Amalekites. So don't, just simp- don't be too quick to say, well, of course I'm an Israelite. If we're honest, there's, a, there's some Amalekite in us. We're the ones who exchange uh, easily the truth for a lie in areas of our lives, who live with no fear of the living God who raise our fists to God and declare, my will be done. I need this. I want this. So have some, have some humility in who we really are in the story. And lastly, uh, trust and follow your captain. Know who, know who your captain is. It's not Joshua, but the true and better Joshua. Watch how he fought in prayer, in dependence, in humility, in sacrifice, and in strength. 
God is often depicted as our great warrior. It's much more warm and fuzzy to think of him as our great shepherd, and he is that, as the gardener. But he's also our warrior. Exodus 15, just before this, Moses declares, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Elohim is his name. The Old Testament scriptures are filled with battles and descriptions of God as our warrior. And then in the New Testament, that continues on. We see God's people waiting for a divine warrior to show up and finish the job, finally set them free from slavery to Rome in that case. And along comes Jesus, a baby born into poverty to a teenage mom from a disreputable village, does not appear as a warrior. He introduces himself later in his life as the son of man, which is a reference to the book of Daniel, a figure who would lead heaven's armies to defeat evil. So in Jesus, we see this divine warrior, yet one who doesn't act like a warrior, not the way we expect a warrior to act. He doesn't wound, he heals. He doesn't torture, he feeds. He doesn't raise up an army, he goes around healing, forgiving, and loving people. And at the peak of the story, when he's threatened by a sword, One of his guys pulls out a sword to defend him and Jesus says, put it away and heals his enemy. What kind of divine warrior is this God? Exactly the one we need. Exactly the one we need. So church, we do have a true enemy. He will oppose us. We are easily, far too easily swayed, but there is a way out. There is a path to victory. We have a victor, Christus victor. So back to Moses and the Malachites real briefly. Um, How Moses responds is is interesting, curious. It's a new power and an ancient posture. I'll start reading in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down under it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on each side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. I don't know if we have a picture of this. I sent something that might show up there. Artists have depicted this, uh, this scene uh, frequently through the last few hundred years. Uh, it's a curious few verses, though. This whole hands lifted in the air business. Moses has the rod of God in his hand, and it represents justice and divine authority. When Moses lifted his hand and staff in previous chapter, God sent locusts and hail. He turned the Nile River to blood. He parted the Red Sea. He closed it back up. And as I mentioned earlier, he has just taken that same hand and same rod and struck a rock and outpoured water to quench the thirst of the people in the desert, starting to grumble. The hand lifted with the staff represents God's power, and his judgment and his authority over evil. But there's something else about this posture. It's actually, if you read it closely, it's a posture of prayer. Right? He's got one hand with the rod. He's got another hand lifted up. He's asking, he's seeking God. He's praying God's power, his authority and will over this battle. He's praying with spiritual authority, with spiritual power over this battle that God would be glorified, that God would be victorious. So it depicts a a prayer for spiritual victory, Moses seeking Yahweh's will in his favor, employing his hand of protection over Joshua and those that are battling on the field below. God's strength and victory and his glory to defeat this ruthless enemy of God who does not fear God. Verse verse 13 says, uh, victory was won by the sword 
But it's not clear that it was. Not just the sword. It wasn't really the sword that won the victory. It was won by grace. It was won through prayer. It was won because God intervened. Right? It wasn't that Joshua was such a skilled fighter. No, it's not, this is not Josh and his ninja skills that, that are the glory of this story, that win the battle. It's not that Josh was being trained by, by George St. Pierre. It's not like the Musk versus Zuck battle is happening. And everybody's training for this big battle and it's the best fighter wins. It's not that at all. The winning team, whoever, God's glorified. Hands are lifted up and they're winning. He gets tired. He sits down. His hands get tired. He puts them down. The battle goes badly. Israelites are losing. People come along and hold up his hand. Now we're winning. Whoa! And he gets tired again. Now they're losing. It's not the skill of the fighter. It's the power of the true authority of the spiritual powers and principalities. That was weird. Probably shouldn't have done that. Sorry if that was distraction. You understand the point. It's not the skill of the fighter. It's the power of the authority of God that is prevailing in this battle. Posturing with your hands lifted high is interesting in a battle, right? You're vulnerable. You're exposing your core. You do not battle like this. You battle like this. You don't battle God's way. Apparently you battle like this. You're vulnerable and weak and there's something powerful to that. That should be an echo to something. This is how we fight. If your trust is in God, you're okay. Hands lifted clarifies your focus. Your eyes are lifted up. You know, who you're, you know who's going to win this battle and you know the, who gets the glory. All right, so Moses gets tired. He's an old man, so to be fair, his hands grew heavy, it says. His hands grew heavy. He lets his hands rest. The battle starts to turn. He lifts his arms up. They prevail. Back and forth it goes. Moses is completely unable to do this on his own. He's dependent on God, but he's also dependent on his community, right? His cousin Aaron shows up and her. His pronouns are he, him, but he's her. I'm sorry. That was, that was really, that was truly terrible. Please fire me tomorrow, like, I, that, yeah, that was, that was gratuitous. I won't do that again. They, in the next sermon, it will not happen. Next service, which isn't going to happen. They hold up his hands when he's tired. You get it. And the Lord prevails in battle. I was praying about this this morning. I had this weird picture. I didn't realize why this was meaningful to me in a, in a strange way. It's because when my father was dying, he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And one of the first signs of Lou Gehrig's for him was that he couldn't lift his hands anymore. All right? He, he was like, he couldn't do this. And so... My brother and I and my mom, we would be always lifting his hands to do things. We'd be helping. We were that support for him. And I, and I realized that's a, a weird connection. So I know that's meaningful, but it was just part of my journey. It's like, that's actually a thing when you can't lift your hands and you're old and his body was falling apart. It's like we were helping for years, for 12 years, we lifted his hands to do what he needed to do to help feed him to the point where he couldn't do that. And then we just fed him. Lots of implications to this though. Victory depends on God, on his strength, right? Not on ours. Prayer is acknowledging our weakness and God's greatness. Prayer is wearying. If you've prayed hard, prayed seriously, you know that it's, it's tiring. You, sometimes you're filled up spiritually, but sometimes you're just deeply exhausted. Prayer is powerful in community. It's powerful when we pray together, right? This church prays, this is a church saturated in prayer. Loves to pray, prays regularly, before, after, during. There's people praying right now. There's people that'll be up front after the service to pray with you. We prayed before the service. We pray in community groups. We pray over every work of the King of Kings in this community and in this city. We just prayed over our neighbors that they would meet Jesus, that they would receive grace and life even through these gatherings. Prayer is for God's glory. That's why Moses is up on the hill, right? So the, the warriors can look up on the hill and see Moses and they're, they're motivated. They're like, yes, 
Oh, no. Yes! Right? There's, they know who's getting the glory, and it's not Moses. I realize, um, realize where they'd be if they could defeat the Amalekites on their own strength. Right? They'd, they'd be just like Pharaoh, trusting in chariots and armies. They'd be just like Amalek in pride and self-sufficiency. We don't really need God. We can do this. We got this. So it's God's grace that they're unable to win on their own. It's God's grace on, on your life and on mine as well. Spiritual victory comes through prayer and dependence upon God's power and his presence. A posture of lifting our hands shows that we get this, that we understand this. The last two verses expand on this a bit more, uh, and I'll try to land, land the plane. New altar and an ancient promise. New altar and an ancient promise. Verse 14. The Lord then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. He said, indeed, my hands, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Write this down, God says. Remember this, because you're prone to forget. In fact, most of you are going to forget. Write this down so you don't have an excuse. Two years after this story, two short years after this story, Moses and the Israelites on the gates of the promised land that they've been promised for many years, they send in spies and what happens? Everybody forgets, except two guys, Joshua and Caleb. Everybody forgets. This is, this is God saying, write this down. Do not forget what just happened here. This battle, this crossing of the Red Sea, this defeat of the great superpower. We easily forget. If they can forget, we can forget. And we do. Everybody forgets God's power and promises. And they end up spending, in this case, 38 years in the wilderness, wandering around, waiting to die, knowing that they're not going to ever get in except for Josh and Caleb. As if God's saying, nobody saw my miracles delivering you from Egypt. None of you have any right to enter the promised land. You don't have any excuses. I asked you to remember. I showed you plenty of signs. And still you lacked faith when you got to the promised land. And we do the same. And if we're honest, we do the same. We forget the evidences of God's grace in our lives so quickly, so easily. When we were facing a new challenge, we don't, we don't necessarily, don't easily and naturally look back and say, remember, remember. Maybe that's a take-home for you today. It was a take-home for me this week at family camp out at Barnabas was just remember the evidences of God's grace in the past. Remember the pattern that he's been building in your life and reinforcing in your life and keep following that way, that good way. Does God really have what it takes? Yes, and he's proven himself over and over in your life. Remind yourself of that and live like it's true because it is. Moses builds an altar. He calls the altar, um, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. A banner is like a, <clears throat> like a military flag, right? It establishes an identity. And if it's raised, if the banner is raised, it indicates a victory. I don't know what's going on. I'm not paying that much attention. Again, we've been in family camp, but there's some sort of a banner war happening in our city. You drive the freeways, you see the banners? Same dynamic. They're declaring an identity. They're declaring where their hope lies, right? And I would submit that both of them are, uh, are misguided. F. Trudeau banners? are declaring that our hope is in overthrowing our current government? Really? Sure, it's got corruption. Like every human being, like every political party. 
Pride banners declare our hope and identity is in humanity exerting power over creation. All right, it's, it's, it's an affront to God. It's an, I do not believe in God. I believe in myself and I will be what I want to be. I will do and act how I want to act. Both of these are misguided banners. They're declaring identity, but both are misguided. The reality is everyone has a banner. The question really is, what's yours? Who are you lifting up? What's your authority? What's your victory? What's your identity? As Christians, I hope it's the same as Moses. The Lord is my banner, declaring my hope is in Jesus. My identity is in Christ. My victory is won through Jesus. Not my greatness, but his. Isaiah 11, verse 10 says, On that day, the root of Jesse, this is referring to Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. Jesus doesn't have a banner. Jesus is the banner. Jesus is the banner. And he can be your banner today. When he was lifted up on the cross, vulnerable, we are to look to him as our banner. And then notice the contrast in the final verse. It says, um, verse 16, I think, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is actually referring to Amalek. It literally means a fist raised against God's throne. It's not a hand outstretched. It's a fist raised. No fear of God versus fear of God. Try to do this. No fear, Amalek. Fear God. Worship and pray in his authority. Two hands both uplifted, one with a fist and one in worship and praise. That's the contrast. Moses lifts his hands to the Lord, praying, I am not in control, but you have the power. Lord, do your will. That's the Amalekites' prideful rebellion versus Moses' prayerful dependence. So this contrast between a fist raised in rebellion and pride and a hand lifted in prayerful dependence, that's the contrast we have. And those are our only two options. Pick one. Your hands are going to be raised. Is it going to be a fist or is it going to be in praise? All right, it's God versus the Amalekites. It's light versus darkness. It's creation versus chaos. It's life versus death. Which one are you in? And if you're not sure, look at your hands. How are they positioned? Not literally, figurative. You know, how are your hands? How is your posture? How is your life? Do you fear God? Do you trust him? Is he getting the glory? Do you enjoy God's stuff or do you enjoy God himself? Do you take credit for blessings in your life? Yeah, I really did deserve that. I really did earn that. Do you blame God when there's opposition, when things don't go well? Really? Are you tolerating a sense of slavery? Unwilling to walk away from the chains? I just can't fight this thing. I just, I'm just prone to this. It's just how I'm made. I'm always going to do that. Really? Are you forgetting God's evidences of grace? Living like your life depends on you. Or are you prayerfully answering God's invitation to join him in the spiritual battle? So it's an interesting story from Moses. Maybe not as practical as you would like or I would like for a prayer sermon, but I felt compelled to unpack that for you. And here's why. There's a lot of good news in this story. God's our warrior, which means we don't have to be. That's great. <clears throat> but we're in a, an environment where in my five short decades of life, I've never seen civilization unravel as fast as it has been the last few years. It feels, I don't know if I'm just getting old and it feels worse, but it just, it really feels worse. It feels bad. It feels like our whole culture is falling apart. 
I see my kids. I see how they're, how they're talking with their, with their peers. I hear the students. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? I mean, I know, and you know what's going on here. We have a sense if you're a Christian. We know how the story ends, so I have a lot of peace. I sleep well at night, but these are not great days. There's a massive, massive spiritual battle playing out, raging in our city, permeating our conversations at work. I was with my, my buddies that I graduated high school with in 1990 last night, and this is the conversation we're having because everybody's having the same conversation. Can you believe this? Can you believe that? What's going on with it? It's, on, it's in every school. It's in every social media feed, politics, family. It doesn't matter. Every conversation. <clears throat> A wonderful Catholic theologian. Her name is Mary Eberstadt. She, um, I'd encourage you to read some of her, her, her work. But she, she summarizes the current state like this with six words. She says, men are at war with God. Men are at war with God. And this is an echo to Solzhenitsyn who wrote the same thing. He said, in four words... The summary of the 20th century and the, the, uh, the gulags in Russia and the communism. and so the, the, it's, It can be summarized with the, with the phrase, men have forgotten God. They have forgotten God. But currently, our issue is that men have, have, are at war with God. And the question at the root of the war is, who exactly should have power over creation? Who, actually, who, who exactly has power over creation? If not God, then who? And apparently our Western Civilization answer is us, you and me. Humanity should have power over creation. It's ours to control. When it begins, when it ends, how it begins, how it ends, everything in between. How we live, who we live, how we identify. Some examples. You can control when you bring a new life into this world to some degree. And if the time is inconvenient or the gender isn't preferred or the IQ potential isn't as high or anything or nothing, no reason at all, just kill the baby. We are in control of creation. Instead of celebrating, another example, and, and really the expanding stereotypical masculine or feminine characteristics, the kingdom of God, the church should be filled with people on the full spectrum of expressions of, of their gender and celebrating that. It's beautiful. No, 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 we're in control. Our culture says, no, we're in control of creation. If you feel more feminine, you're actually you're a woman. We'll help you with that or vice versa. And every version along that, set, that whole spectrum, you understand, like, what? It's be- Men are at war with God. We will do what we see fit when we want to do it, how we want to do it. It doesn't matter what science says. It doesn't matter that this is destroying, this is a social contagion happening in every school in the city. We're looking at schools in Langley, and there's one school that offered a position, a very, you know, elite school to get into. And we're like, wow, that's kind of an honor. And then I an article comes up, 14 young girls are transitioning to be boys in this, in this junior high. Like, nope, not on my watch. My daughter's not going there. What's going on? That's every school. That's not unusual. That's like, yep, that's our city. That is the air we breathe. Spiritual war. We're in it. It's destroying these kids. And culture doesn't care because they're doubling down on stupid. Sin makes you stupid. And they can't admit it because it would, everything with their whole worldview falls apart. Men are at war with God. That's what's happening. It's not that they're terrible people. They're just at war with God. I've got two daughters in nursing. One just graduated. My wife's a nurse. One's starting next semester. And they're dealing with MAID, medical assistance in dying. Instead of allowing dignity at the end of life, our country is on the leading edge globally of encouraging those with now mental illness, depression, anxiety, or simply a hard life. Just end your life. Men are at war with God. 
I mean, that's just evil. If you don't realize, you, you don't, if you don't know history, that's, that's how Auschwitz happens. It always starts with euthanasia. Sounds good. Oh, we're just being compassionate. It's not too many steps away. That's the path we're on. This is how it goes. This is how it always goes. And we know that, but we're pretending we don't. Oh, we're just being compassionate. We're still in the stupid phase of this. Men are at war with God. That is our culture. Overtly at war with God as the created one. But God is our warrior and his invitation is to turn to him. To seek him, to trust him. So church, Christian, where is victory found? Not in our strength, not in our efforts, not in our obedience, but in his. What's needed? Prayer and compassion. Prayer and compassion. Know your enemy and it's not people with this terrible worldview. It's not people infected with the woke mind virus. That's not your enemy. Compassion and prayer is our response. This next generation is suffering terribly. Most of them don't have intact homes. Almost none of them have a healthy father. They've often experienced violence, trauma, abuse, terrible things in their childhood. It is no wonder that they're saying, we need to do something different. This world isn't working for me. I need something different. Oh, I can choose my identity and then I'll get some some benefits or fill in the blank. It's only natural to want out of a painful life circumstance if you're born into it. And that's the next generation. Life is hard. How are any kids ever going to be able to afford stable housing? They're not. Unless you have affluence that's generational, they're never buying a home. That's kind of a crappy story. Sorry, I'm in pastor mode. That's not a great story. Like it's a, life is hard. So it's easy to say, we're, I'm, we're going to go for socialism, maybe even communism. Okay, that's crazy. And it ends badly for everybody every time. But it's understandable you'd think that because you've been born into a pretty tough environment when the situation, including the economy, isn't really working for you. In fact, we've straddled your generation and the next generation with more debt than they'll ever pay. And apparently we don't care. Everything's broken. We're at war with God. Remember that. But they're not wrong. The generation that believes this, this, this stuff is not wrong to apprehend that something is run amok. It has. And they want out. Church, Jesus loves this generation. He has uniquely positioned you and I to bring grace and to bring healing. We need to create space in this church, in every gospel spirit-filled, truth-loving church. We need to create space for this, this generation. When they, when they wake up, when they have a true awakening, where are they going to go? We need to create space for healing, where they recognize the dignity, where we recognize the dignity and worth of every person who's raised their fist to God, thinking the problem was with creation or the creator. When that generation wakes up from this intoxication, this deep sleep, Where are they going to go to find healing? I don't know, but I know where it's supposed to be. And it's supposed to be right here. In our rooms, in our homes, in our families, and in this church. Who, if not the church, is better equipped to help rebuild somebody's true identity? Who, if not the church, can be a family for those with none? You you realize these people aren't having any kids. This is a one-generational thing. They're not married, they don't value marriage, and they're not having any kids. This is a 40-year thing, and then it's done. But where are they going to have a family? It's supposed to be you and I. How can we do this if our posture isn't one of prayerful dependence on Jesus? Or if we think that they're actually the enemy and we put all of our energy and efforts into fighting them as people. This terrible worldview that's actually destroying them and everything around them. It's corrosive. They're not the enemy. 
They're desperately looking for something true and beautiful and they've never met a Christian. They've never met Jesus. They have a weird caricature, but they don't know who he is. That's our job. So remember the Lord, our humble warrior king is on your side. He will be our strength. He will be our victor. Like he was for Moses, Joshua, like he has been for many of us. You and I need to lift our eyes and lift our hands to Jesus, the true and better Joshua, the true and better warrior. And look what Jesus did. He didn't come with a sword in his hands. He came with nails in his hands. He did not come to bring the sword of God's judgment, but to bear the sword of God's judgment. He overcame evil with good. He came not just to end the Amalekite or Roman Empire, but to end Satan's empire, his sin, his evil, and his reign of darkness. And he did it by loving, by dying, by sacrificing, by serving, and by saving. And one day he'll come to end all evil. We know how how this goes. We know the end of the story. One day he will pass judgment, but he won't end us because of what he did on the cross. Because of the cross, he won't end us. To those of you not yet Christians, I plea with you, implore you, stop raising your fist to God. God sent his son to be your hero, to be your healer, to be your salvation. Let the hero of this story, the mighty God, be the hero of your story. Throw your life at his mercy. Implore you, throw your life at his mercy. People up front would love to pray with you about that and ask questions, what does that really mean? Today's the day. For those of you already, who already follow and worship Jesus, and that's probably most of you, let's be reminded of the great gift of salvation. Remember that our God is mighty to save and that he invites us to lift up our hands and our hearts in prayer of thanksgiving and adoration and ultimately spiritual victory. We transition to a time of communion. Um, as part of our gatherings here at Midtown, we remember and we rehearse this story, this gospel in communion, through song and through worship and prayer and in giving, I'll invite the the musicians to come forward and lead us in worship. We're making an effort to remember that victory depends on God, not on us. So as we eat and as we drink from this cup and from this bread, we remember Jesus. We remember his body broken for us. He was pierced and he was beaten. We raised our fists against him and he took the blows. We remember Jesus' blood shed for us. He lifted his hands in worship and entrusted his life to the Father. So as we eat and drink, let us be renewed with these truths and remember and rehearse them together. If you're not a Christian, this table isn't for you, but it is a time for you to come forward and receive prayer. There'll be people on both sides that would love to pray for you. As you take your fist down towards God's throne, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in this time of need. If your hands, like mine, are growing heavy, I'd also invite you to pray. Pray for one another. Maybe pray with one another in your rows. Come forward and people will help lift up your hands and pray together. Let me pray for us and we'll respond. Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're doing. I pray that you would magnify this message. Um, Take away the parts that don't need to be remembered and magnify the parts that do. Jesus, be the hero of this story and may this be a community of true healing, grace, reconciliation, that the world may know that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. May we know our enemy, And we not get confused. May we truly and dearly and sacrificially love our neighbors as you have so done with us. We love you, Jesus. We desperately need you. Be our victor. In your name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.